So we're going we're gonna to jump in here, and um, this has been a weird few weeks um, because we, we missed—I uh, almost said we missed school. We've missed a lot of school. But we missed church a couple of weeks ago because of the weather. And then, honestly, last week we debated whether or not we should have church because of the weather. And, and we thought, well, we didn't want to cancel it two weeks in a row. Um, and so we had church thinking we'd have about five people here. Um, and actually, we had a good crowd come out, and so we appreciate that. Uh, but if you lived out of town, we knew that you shouldn't try that. So um, this series, which was supposed to be three weeks long, has been truncated and, and shortened a little bit. But we hope we're still giving you the heart of everything that you need to hear and wrestle with. Um, and it is, in case you can't tell by the title slide and the graphic, this is a series for men. Dudes. Okay. Um, that's not to discount the women in the room. There is plenty of practical application for women, but we said early on that we were calling this a series for men because, quite frankly, we need men to respond to this. If I read the New Testament correctly, Jesus had a very simple plan for reaching the nations. It was to call, disciple, and send men. And through that, we would see um, a revival, and we would see hearts turning to God, and we would see the gospel being shared, and we would see people being um, drawn to Christ. That's the New Testament model. It's what we read. It's, it's Jesus's plan. And can you imagine what would happen? Let me just say it this way. The church needs engaged men. And that's not a slight on women. The simple fact of the matter is women outpace men in this by a large degree, right? So women are more actively engaged in the church than men. Women are—they uh, outnumber men in congregations on a Sunday morning across this nation by a good margin. Women outnumber men serving significantly in ministry roles inside the church by a large margin. This isn't slight on women, but men, this is an indictment on us. The church needs engaged men. And can you imagine? I can. Can you imagine what would happen in Vinton and in Benton County if we had men that were actively engaged in the gospel of Jesus Christ? Not men that play with it. Not men that know about it or understand it and then tuck it away but men that are actively engaged in the gospel of Jesus Christ. It, it would be a big deal. Okay, and so we've been talking about biblical masculinity and what it looks like. Okay, and, and the reason we've been talking about biblical masculinity is because in our culture, masculinity is something that is rarely celebrated and it's often attacked and we, we like to talk in our culture about something called toxic masculinity. And it's real. It exists. Toxic masculinity is when men use their God-given power to oppress or put down or, or do something to others instead of to honor and, and serve the purpose that God has given them. Okay, and so we want to be really clear about how we can know if we're being biblically men or if we're being toxically men. And it's not complicated. It is not a complicated procedure. Just Man, you put up last week's PowerPoint, kid. So if you don't have it, we'll kill it. So uh, I was like, man, that's not a slide I want. Um, but it's okay. I've got them here. You'll just have to write faster notes. And I suggest you go ahead now, open up your Bible to 1 Samuel 17. I had it all up there for you, but you're out of luck. Um, here's the deal. Um, as, as we work through this, um, here's something I need you to understand. We are authentic biblical men when we use our God-given power for his God-given purpose. If you want to know what it means to be a biblically authentic man, you use the God-given power that he has given you to do the God-given purposes that he has laid on your life. It's really that simple. That's how it works. That's the process. Where we start to get off is, is when we, we start to um, decide that God's purposes in our life are secondary to our wants, needs, and desires. 
So we use our God-given strength in ways that are selfish. When we use our God-given strength in ways that are selfish, what happens is we end up being what the society would call toxically masculine. Okay? And so we're going to jump in and we're going to figure out ways to deal with this. And what we know in, in, uh, in society is that there are basically three ways that men screw this up. Other people too. Again, women too, but men, I'm specifically talking to you in this. One of them was our topic last week. We get passive. Men have a tendency to be extremely passive. It's the sin of Adam, right? Um, Eve talked to the, to, to the devil She took the fruit because she was convinced by the devil that the fruit was good. She plucked it off the tree that God said, don't take the fruit. She took the fruit. She saw that it was delicious. She took a bite of the fruit. All the while, the man was standing right next to her. And God puts that sin on Adam. That's not Matt trying to twist scripture and move things around. God puts that sin on on Adam. Adam blames. We read Roman. Adam's, uh, God says that Adam is the one through whom sin entered the world. Because Adam is the one who passively stood by and allowed his wife to be tempted and manipulated by Satan. And men, we have, a, we have, we have this mode of passivity that we just tend to, to be. We tend to be passive. Not in all areas of life. In some areas of life, we confidently step into space. But, but, but in areas when it comes to faith and religion and family, too often we have this tendency to step back and be passive. And that's problematic and it's sin. It's sin to know what's right and not do what's right. So one of the ways this plays out is, is being passive. Another way this plays out, and, and we know this, is being aggressive. There are far too many men that are aggressive. And, and that usually comes out in one of two ways. Either we get silent or we get violent. And some of you know that struggle all too well. But what happens when we get aggressive is we use our God-given power to assert our authority on people in a way that doesn't honor God and it doesn't align with his purposes. We can be explosive. We can be angry. We can be volatile. And, and it's, it, it's our presence, could be our voice, can even be our physical um, harm. But um, too many men um, enter into toxic masculinity um, through passivity um, or through uh, aggression. But the one that's common to the Christian man, the one that we all struggle with most, is where we live in this passive-aggressive nature. See, one of the things that's true is that that Christian men, especially, like to be passive-aggressive. Passive-aggressive is is safe. Because when I can be passively aggressive, I can still be viewed as a nice guy. Right? When I'm passively aggressive, um, what happens is is I'm toxic behind the scenes. Not out front. Um, I'm not being overtly aggressive where everybody would look at me and say, man, that's problematic. That's not the way we're supposed to be. But, but it's this, this thing that happens behind the scenes where we're toxic and it's, it's dangerous. Guys, um, this, is, this is when we f- refuse to engage. Oftentimes when we're being passive aggressive, we play the victim card. Um, you know, we focus on, on how we're not appreciated. We get sullen and withdrawn Sometimes in this space, we even manipulate by vacillating back and forth between hostile and remorseful. And we're hostile and we're remorseful. And so we kind of go on this roller coaster and the people that are trying to track it with us, they, they, they don't know how to do this and they're kind of held hostage. When we're passively aggressive, um, we act like their mistakes are unforgivable and our mistakes are understandable. And as a Christian man, I can tell you that this is something that I've wrestled with um, in my life, this idea of being passively aggressive, where, where um, somebody else's mistake is, oh, it's, it's huge, and it's unforgivable. And my mistake is, it's, it's natural, it's easy. Of course that would happen. I should be forgiven in a heartbeat, right? I give them grace from an eyedropper, and I expect buckets for myself. It's what happens when we're 
we're passively aggressive. And, and, and in a marriage, passive-aggressive, uh, we can withhold affection, communication, sometimes even financial um, means. And so this is the thing that we have to worry about. This is the thing that we have to figure out because um, in our culture, Christian men don't stand out the way that they're supposed to. See, we understand that men in general in our culture will struggle with toxic masculinity. Of course they will. Of course men that are outside of the church that don't know Jesus Christ will struggle with toxic masculinity. Of course they will. Why wouldn't they? Because they have God-given strength, but they don't have God-given purpose. They don't acknowledge God-given purpose. So of course they're going to struggle with this, and of course they're going to dabble in these ways that aren't appropriate. Of course that's true. But man, in the church, it's supposed to look different. The men in the church are supposed to be known as being biblically, authentically men. And sometimes, because the Christian attitude is oftentimes to be passive, or the Christian attitude is oftentimes to be passive-aggressive, we don't necessarily step into the role that God has for us. And we need to deal with that. And the the honest thing is this. Listen, it's not complicated. To be a biblically authentic man is not complicated complicated. It's simple by nature. It's not difficult. It's just something that's hard. I know that sounds like I contradicted myself, right? It's simple. It's not hard, but it's difficult, right? It's easy to figure out what it means to be a biblically authentic man. It is hard to live it out. But it starts with knowledge, and that's what I hope that we can get today as we dig in um, to First Samuel. Okay, because this isn't overly complicated stuff to figure out. You want to be a biblically authentic man? Then here it is. I would read this for you, um, or show it to you, but you're just going to have to trust me that it says this. Um, here's the deal. You want to be a biblically authentic man? Then here's the key. Write this down. Circle it. Put it somewhere. Wives, you can write it on your husband's hands if you want to. Um, that's going to make for a really awkward conversation when you go home. But awkward conversation is better than no conversation, I guess. Here's what it is. You want to be a biblically authentic man, then you need to be a man after God's own heart. I'll set the stage for you. In, in, 1, Samuel, um, in 1 Samuel, what's happened is um, we're at the end of the time of the judges. And um, Israel has been in this roller coaster of a ride with sin. They would repent from their sin, and they would be right with God, and God would bless them. In their blessings, right? So this is is why it's so jacked up. This is why it's so weird. Because in their blessings, when things are going really good, that's when they forget God. Right? We have this picture that when people really want to reject God is when things are bad, and when things are hard. And when things are hard in my life, that's when I want to turn away from God and say, Why, God, why? If you were good, these things wouldn't happen to me. But that's not how it works for Christians. What, what happens to Christians is that when things get bad, they, they cry out to God, and they want God because they know they need help. And if you really deep down know that there's a God of the universe that loves you, then you cry out to the God of the universe that loves you and say, Help me with this. And God helps you. I'm not saying he fixes all of your problems, but he gives you power and he gives you strength. And through the power of the Holy Spirit, he helps you step into that space and and handle the adversity. And then you're like, okay. And you get to the other side and things are going well. And when things are going well, you're like, I I don't need that guy. Like, I can go my own way now. And of course, when I go my own way and when I'm in charge of my own life and I do what's best for me or what I think is best for me, not what God tells me to do, what happens? Well, I end up right back in the muck. And then when I'm in the muck, I look around and I'm like, man, how did I get here in the muck? Oh, I know. I sinned. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to cry out for God. And I'm going to ask God to forgive me and to bless me and to step in this space and to lift me up out of the muck and the mire and put my feet on solid ground. David got stuck here. That's what Psalm 40 is all about. And then God does that. And so this is what was happening with Israel all through the time of the judges. They're in this roller coaster where they honor God and God blesses them. And then they stop honoring God and they enter into to being an oppressed people, oppressed by the nations around them. And then they repent and they honor God and God blesses them again. 
And then the roller coaster happens and happens. And we get to 1 Samuel, and Samuel is actually, he's a priest, and he's the last of the judges. Okay? And when Samuel comes into power, um, he's about ready to retire. And the people say, well, Samuel, you're going to retire. We've seen this pattern play out over and over and over again. We don't want more judges. We don't want to get stuck again. Give us a king so we can be like every other nation. Give us a king that will be over us so we can be like every other nation. And of course, that wasn't God's plan. God's plan was that people would follow him. And there were priests and prophets that were supposed to lead people to follow him. But they said, no, no, no. Sometimes we can't trust that they're actually seeking God's face. And if they're not really seeking God's face, then they'll do corrupt and we'll fall into sin again. So give us a king who will be over it all, and we'll follow the king. That's not what God had for them, but God says, okay, I'll give you a king. And God chooses Saul to be the first king. Saul, who looked like a king. I mean, this dude was head and shoulders above everybody else. So I think in this room, like, like height-wise, like just, you know, big, tall, that would make him Jim. Um, right? J- Jim was an offensive lineman in college. Um, and, and you look at Jim and you're like, okay, I, I do not want to line up against him. In the Blessed Hope Flag football game, I want no part of that. Right? But, but like, like, so he was head and shoulders above everybody else. He was muscular and manly. And you looked at him and you would say, there is a guy that I can follow. There is a guy that I can go ahead and follow as king because he looks like a king. And when people look at him, they'll say, well, oh, he's the king. That makes sense. He looks like the king, right? I walk out there and I'm like, guys, I know we're playing basketball. I'm the center. That's me. The, the, the six-foot overweight white guy. That's me. That's my role. I don't look like that's my role, right? But Saul looked like a king. And so he was elevated to king. God blessed him to make him king. And God told him, look, if you follow all the rules that I'm giving you, I will make your family king forever. I will give you a dynasty. I will bless you. I will bless your house. There will never be a question about your authority in Israel if you'll just follow me. I'll give you everything. And Saul screws it up. Saul screws it up multiple times, and the last time is this. He's getting ready to go into battle against the Philistines. And um, he's, because he's not the priest, he's not allowed to go into the Holy of Holies. He's not allowed to go into the holy place to make a sacrifice to God. That's, that's a, a in, in Old Testament law, that is a job that was reserved for the high priest. That was the high priest's privilege. But what happened is, Saul said to Samuel, hey, we're going to be going into battle. Meet me here in seven days. You can make the offering. Then we'll go into battle. Seven days passed. Samuel didn't show up the way Saul wanted him to. All of Saul's soldiers started to get antsy. Many of them started to desert. Saul was terrified because here he is getting ready to go into battle. He has no spiritual authority there. His people are starting to desert because they're like, well, if God's not with us, we can't win. So here's what Saul does. Instead of waiting for Samuel and being obedient to the Lord, he goes into the temple or into the tabernacle and he offers the sacrifice himself. As soon as he's done offering the sacrifice, Samuel shows up and says, What have you done? This is in 1 Samuel 13, 13 and 14. You have not kept the command the Lord your God gave you. Had you kept it, the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom must end, for the Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. Basically, what Samuel is saying there is, obviously what you desire is more important than what God has said. And that's not going to cut it in a relationship with the God of the universe. That isn't what makes you a man just go do what you think needs to be done. You should have followed the law of the God of the universe. And if you had followed the law of the God of the universe, then everything God had promised you would have come to fruition. But because you didn't, God's done. You are going to be removed. Your dynasty will not continue, but instead, God is going to choose another. 
He's going to seek out another to take your place. And the one he's going to seek out is going to be known for this. Not for looking the part of the king. Not for being articulate. Not for standing head and shoulders above everybody else. Not for his ability in battle. What's going to make him kingly, what's going to make him great in the eyes of God, is that he will be a man after God's own heart. And of course, we know from Scripture that that's David. 1 Samuel 16, 7, um, God sends Samuel to, to Jesse's home and says, hey, I'm going to anoint one of Jesse's sons to be the next king. And so Samuel goes and he says, hey, bring your sons in one at a time. And, and each time a son comes in, Samuel says, yeah, that guy looks like a king. And God says, no. The next son comes in and he's like, oh, yeah, yeah, that guy's big and strong. He looks like it could be a king. And God says, no. Eventually, God tells him this in 16.7. Don't judge by his appearance or by his height, because I've rejected them. The Lord doesn't see things the way that you see them. People judge by outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And what God is looking for in a great man is a man that is after his own heart. And in 1 Samuel 16.13, we see the picture that David is chosen as the least of the family. He's the runt. If, if we read the original Hebrew, what it tells us is he's kind of um, pretty looking. Um, he's not manly. He's a boy. He doesn't even have a place at the regular table necessarily. They're all home. Where's he at? He's out in the field earning his keep. He's got to work his way up. He's out, he's out tending sheep. But eventually... He comes to Samuel. Samuel immediately says, that's the one that God chose because God has told Samuel, that's the one because he's a man after my own heart. So Saul, uh, I'm sorry, Samuel takes the olive oil that he had and he anoints David with the oil and the spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David from that day on. But I want you to know something. The spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David from that day on. Why? Because he was a man after God's own heart. Sometimes we think it's the opposite, right? Because the Spirit of the Lord was on him, he was able then to be a man after God's own heart. No, 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 it doesn't work that way. You've got the order inversed there if you think that's the way it is. He is committed to being a man after God's own heart. He wants to honor and serve the God of the universe in any way that he can. And because of that, the Spirit of the Lord is on him in power. Some of you are waiting. Some of you are waiting. And listen to me, I don't, I don't know what you're waiting for. If you are a Christ follower, the Spirit of the Lord lives in you. You want it to be powerful in you? Then dedicate yourself to being a man or a woman after God's own heart. That's how that happens. If you've been waiting for the Spirit of God to show up in a powerful way in your life, then, well, I read here, there's something that happens first, and that's that you align your heart with God's. And that you be a man or you be a woman after God's own heart. But David, is, he's, he's, he's a man after God's own heart, and he's anointed. And he doesn't become king right away, uh, but the promise is that he will eventually become king. And so what happens is then we, we read through the rest of 1 Samuel and we get pictures before David becomes king of some things in David's life. And, and so there's a couple of things that we can learn. There's really five things that we can learn. And, and uh, I'll say them and I'll repeat them a couple times if you choose to write them down. But here's what I'll do. When we post this sermon online, the video and the audio on the website, I'll make sure the PowerPoint gets uploaded there as well. So you'll have that to reference if, if this interests you, uh, which I hope it does. But, but what we see is, is in David's life, and, and we're going to take a snapshot of his life, and that's his moment with Goliath. We're going to see five things that contribute to being a man after God's own heart. And so we're going to walk through those together. But first, I want to set the stage for you, the background of, of what this looks like. So there's, there's a time when, when um, Saul and, and, and the Israelites and his army are still at war with the Philistines. And so what would happen every day is they would go out, and there's this vow between them, um, and they would come out to battle, okay? And when they would come out to battle, all of the Israelites would line up on this side, and all of the Philistines would line up on that side, and they'd stare at each other, right? They'd really try to be intimidating, 
right? Uh, like this is, the, this is the daily endeavor. And then after a minute of the staring at each other, what would happen is Goliath, okay? Now we use Goliath as a term of like, oh, it's the giant in your life that you're trying to get past. Well, Goliath actually was a dude. Like he was a guy, right? And, and so Goliath, who was the champion of the Philistines, would walk out into in the middle of the battlefield between the two armies, and he would just kind of stand there as this intimidating figure, right? And here's what, here, here's, let me, let me just give you the description. Then Goliath, this is in 17 verse 4, then Goliath, the Philistine champion from Gath, came out of the Philistine ranks to face the forces of Israel. He was over nine feet tall. He wore a bronze helmet, and his bronze coat of mail weighed 125 pounds. Listen to me. His... The other day I bought um, salt for our um, water softener. You know those come in 50-pound bags. I took two at once. And then I took a rest. This guy is going into battle wearing chain mail that's 125 pounds. Um, to say he was a little bit stronger and more fit than I is, is an understatement by far. Where was I? Water softener salt. That's embarrassing. I mean, I carried six at once <laughs> while drinking a cup of coffee and changing a tire and shooting deer. Whatever else we do in Vin to be manly. I don't know. Anyway, moving on. 125 pounds. He also wore bronze leg armor, and he carried a bronze javelin on his shoulder. The shaft of his spear was as heavy and thick as a weaver's beam, tipped with an iron spearhead that weighed 15 pounds. His armor bearer walked ahead of him carrying a shield. Goliath stood and shouted a taunt to the Israelites. Why are all of you coming out to, I'm sorry, why are all of you coming out to fight? He called. I am a Philistine champion, but you are only servants of Saul. Choose one man to come down here and fight me. If he kills me, then we'll be your slaves. But if I kill him, then you'll be our slaves. I defy the armies of Israel today. Send a man who will fight me. When Saul and the Israelites heard this, they were terrified and deeply shaken. So, so here's the thing. Um, there is the giant, and then there's the challenge. So he comes out and he says, I am imposing, to say the least. The Israelites look, and they're scared. And then he issues the challenge of, you know what? We don't have to have a battle where everybody dies. We don't have to do that. I just need one champion of Israel to come out and face me. Man to man, mano a mano. You get me, we submit. I get you, you submit. And in this way, we could, we could fight this whole war without any bloodshed except between the two of these men. So this is—and and that's a fairly common thing that was done. And, and this, is, this is the challenge, and this is how it works. And um, instead of um, Saul, who is the king, saying, oh yeah, God's got my back. Well, he already knows better, right? He knows he's been rejected. And so he's terrified. And his men are terrified. But you know who's not terrified? A teenager. Mostly it's because teenagers are stupid. <laughs> I'm kidding. It's not true. You just don't always think things through. But that's not what this is. That's not what this is. This isn't about teenagers not thinking things through. This is, a, this is about. Some of them, if you could see the teenagers, some of them are looking incredulous. Others are going, yeah. All of the parents are going, yeah. But, but here's the deal. Here's the deal. Um, it just so happens that one of these days, David, who's too young for war, this is a boy who's too young for war. Get that through your head. He's too young to be at war. His brothers aren't. His brothers are there. They're part of the battle lines. David's too young to be at war. He's still home acting like a shepherd. Now, this isn't one of those things where only the tough 
um, or, or this isn't one of those things where we say, okay, I, I, everybody, you know, you're not quite fit for service, you go home. If you were of age to be in service in this battle, you would have been there to fight this battle. There was no, ah, you're not quite strong enough, you stay home. He's just not of age. He's not of age, that's why he's not there. But one day he wakes up and his dad, Jesse, says, hey, here, here's an idea. Instead of going out and doing the sheep today, here's what I want you to do. I want you to take this picnic lunch, right? Uh, he doesn't call it a picnic lunch, but that's what it is. Take the snacks, the cheese, the, the, the milk, the, uh, the honey, the bread. Take it to your brothers and see how they're doing and bring back a report for me. So David does that. He goes and he checks in and, and he's like, hey, here, here's how I am. And, and, and while he's there... Goliath does what Goliath does, and he walks out and he makes his big impassioned speech. And so David overhears it. So here is, is, is key number one to being a man after God's own heart. You ready for this? Key number one to being a man after God's own heart is that a man after God's own heart is committed to doing what's right. Period. A man after God's own heart makes a commitment to do what's right. And you and I both know that a commitment to do what's right sometimes is simple, but oftentimes a commitment to do what is right is terribly, painfully hard. But he makes a commitment to doing what's right. He hears Goliath, and so he starts asking the soldier standing nearby, what will a guy get for killing this dude? Like, who is Goliath? This is in, in verse 26. Who is this pagan Philistine anyway, that he is allowed to defy the armies of the living God. See, David looks at this guy, and, and he says right off the bat, whoa, time out. This is a moral issue. This is a right or wrong issue. There is a guy standing out there insulting the living God, and you're standing here just letting it happen. What is wrong with you? And so he says, what does a guy get if he goes and kills him? Right? What does a guy get when he goes and kills him? Right? Who is this guy that stands out there? We need to end this defiance of the living God. And so he decides in his heart right then and there, because he's a man after God's own heart, that he will do what is right. He makes a commitment to that, and he won't back down. Second thing, a man after God's own heart, listen to me. Oh, this, this one is big. A man after God's own heart is not shamed to silence. And in our world, if you are committed to following God at all costs, people will try to shame you to silence. That just is what it is. The reason for that is because you're being a man after God's own heart who is committed to doing what is right no matter what is going to put pressure on them that they don't like. And that's exactly what happens here. It's exactly what happens here with David. In, in verse 28, his brother, the oldest brother, Eliab, he overhears, he heard David talking to the men, and he was angry. What are you doing around here anyway, he demanded. What about those few little sheep? This is a taunt. What about those few little sheep that you're supposed to be taking care of? I know about your pride and your deceit. You just want to see the battle. You're just acting like a spoiled little kid. And so his brother, who is supposed to be a man of God, a man of influence, comes alongside, and instead of, instead of having courage with David, he tries to shame him into silence. And we get that, man. We get that all the time in our world. We get it from other people in the name of Christ that we should speak less about Christ. In the name of Christ, they tell us that we should calm down just a little bit. Does everything you do or say have to be about Jesus? Really? Really? You're giving the rest of us a bad name. They even might try to get super spiritual, like you're turning people off. I, I will turn—listen, I will admit to you, I have turned people off in talking about Jesus. I have turned people off. I turn people off with my stupidity. I turn people off with my harshness. I turn people off with my sin. I've never turned people off by talking about the God of the universe and unapologetically following him. That doesn't turn people off, but it shames other Christians who ought to be doing the same thing. 
that's what's happening here. David says, who does that guy think he is that he can defy the armies of the living God? The living God. The Lord of heaven and earth. And he's taunting him, and you guys are just standing here. And they try to shame him to silence, but he won't have it. He says, what have I done now? And then here's what he did. He turns around, he walks away, and he goes and answers to somebody else. Hey! What happens when you go kill this guy? And so David's question eventually gets to, in, in, in verses 30 through 32, eventually gets to the king, and um, his question was reported to King Saul, and the king sent for him. And so David, David, the kid who's not old enough for battle because he's committed to doing what's right, and he refuses to be shamed into silence, he walks up to the king of Israel. The guy, remember, he, he doesn't act like a king because he doesn't have the heart of a king. He is not a great man. But he walks up to this guy who looks like a king, this imposing figure, and he steps into the space and he says this. Hey, don't worry about that, Philistine. I'll go, I'll, I'll go fight him. I'll do it. Because he's not shamed into silence. And then the next thing we've got is, is that uh, a man after God's own heart proves his faithfulness in the small things. You don't just show up and come big for God. You prove your faithfulness for God in the small things. And when you're faithful in the small things, man of God, you grow into a great man of God. And so this is what happens. Um, He goes to Saul, and Saul takes one look at him. He says, don't worry. I'll go fight him. The word fight doesn't leave room for I might lose. He says it with such confidence. He's like, I will go beat him. Saul takes a look at him and he says, you're just a boy. He's been training for battle from his youth. He has been a seasoned soldier longer than you've been alive. He's never lost a battle. There's too much at stake. You can't win. And so he intends to basically pat David on the head and say, you might as well go home, little boy, um, because this isn't going to work. But David responds, listen, I've been taking care of my father's sheep and goats, and when a lion or a bear comes to steal a lamb from the flock, guess what I do? I go after it with a club, a lion or a bear, right? A lion or a bear comes after it. I go after it with a club and rescue the lamb from its mouth. If the animal turns on me, like, like if it just drops it and runs away, like, great, there it goes. I'm fine. Lamb's fine. We're all good. If it turns on me, I love this, I catch it by the jaw and club it to death. This is a young man saying, look, you're right. I don't have battle experience. I'm committed to doing what's right, and I will not be shamed to silence, and I do not have experience in war. But you know what? Every opportunity God's given me, I have stepped up and been faithful. So here's my experience in the small things. I would club it to death. I've done this to both lions and bears, and I'll do it to this pagan Philistine too. For he has defied the armies of the living God. The Lord who rescued me from the claws of the lions and the bear will rescue me from this Philistine. Like, that's the attitude, right? He's like, he's like you know what? You guys, you guys are so confused because you look at this big obstacle and you think you have to go fight that big obstacle. I look at that big obstacle and I think, God is going to smite him and he'll use me to do it. You understand the difference in mindset? A man of God, a man after God's own heart is faithful in the little things and he doesn't see the obstacle as something that he alone has to defeat but that the God of the universe is going to take care of it. And how cool is it? This is David's attitude. How cool is it that I could get to be a part of that? Like God is going to do what God is going to do, but wouldn't I love to be a part of it? I think he's probably looking around going, what's wrong with you people that you're missing out on this blessing? What's wrong with you that you're sleeping on this? But he says, I'll do it. And so, so he gets permission. Um, Saul finally relents and says, go for it. And so a man after God's own heart He's committed to doing what's right, and he isn't shamed into silence. Um, And um, here's the deal. Um, His heart is faithful in the small things. And and the fourth thing is his trust is in God alone. He doesn't trust in anything else. 
And we see that in, in David's words as they continue. Saul tries to give him his armor. Saul had, Saul had all, the only armor that existed in the nation of Israel. Saul owned it. The only weapon was his. Like there were, there were weapons that were farm implements, but he had the sword. He had the shield and, and the helmet and, and the chain mail and the armor. And so Saul says, fine, well, if you're going into battle, here's my armor. And he puts the armor on him. Of course, Saul's a, a man, right? Um, and, and David's a boy and it doesn't fit. And David says, this is awkward. This is weird. I don't want it. He says, I know what I'm going into battle with. And this helmet and this shield and this chain mail that you're trying to give me, this sword that you want me to carry, I don't need any of that to win. Because I know what I'm going into battle with. I'm going into battle with the glory of the Lord as my shield. I'm going into the battle with the glory of the Lord as my weapon and my rear guard. I need nothing from you. And so David selects five small stones to go um, in his pouch with the slingshot that he has always used um, in his shepherding, and he gets ready to go into battle. And as soon as he steps on the battle line, um, Goliath starts to taunt him. He's uh, 43 and 44. Am I a dog, he roared at David, that you come at me with a stick? And he cursed David by the names of his God. Come over here, and I will give your flesh to the birds and wild animals. Goliath yelled, like, come over here and I will give you a birth. I mean, this is, so David, the boy, should be intimidated, but instead, I love this, uh, because he knows that God is his source of strength, right? A a man after God's own heart um, trusts in God alone. Not in weapons, not in his own cunning, and nothing like that. He trusts in God alone, so here's what he says. I love this. Check this. Uh, Verses 45 through 47. You come to me with sword, spear, and javelin. But I come to you in the name of the Lord of heaven's armies and the God of the armies of Israel whom you defiled. Today, the Lord, that God, he will conquer you. He will conquer you. Get this. Get get the order, right? Because a man after God's own heart, a great man knows the order. He will conquer you. I will kill you. This is what he says. It's so great. He will conquer you. And because he conquers you, I will kill you. And check this. I mean, this is a kid that would end up in the school counselor's office real quick. I promise you. I will kill you and I will cut off your head. That's what he says, which is weird because he doesn't have a sword. Right? So David has a very clear plan of how this is going to play out. I'm going to kill you. Then I'm going to take your own sword and I'm going to cut your head off with it. That's basically what he's saying. Because he's out here with no sword. I got a slingshot, some stones. The Lord will conquer you. I will kill you. And then I'll give the dead bodies of your men. He doesn't stop here. After I kill you, I'm taking everybody else out too. I will give the dead bodies of your men to the birds and wild animals, and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. And everyone assembled here will know that the Lord rescues his people, but not with sword or spear. Because this is the Lord's battle, and he will give you to us. David is a man after God's own heart because he, uh, he commits to doing what's right. He isn't shamed into silence. He proves himself faithful in the small things. He's a man after God's own heart because he trusts in God alone. And, and then this last part, don't sleep on this, this last little thing, he is a man after God's own heart because he follows through. There's just this one little verse here um, that, that would indicate that he follows through. 1 Samuel 17, 48, as Goliath moved closer to attack him, David quickly ran out to meet him. It's not just talk. It's not just a bunch of words. He doesn't sit there and go, oh man, well, he didn't, he called my bluff. I better go back and sit down. Like I thought if I talked real tough that he would go away, but he didn't go away. So I guess I'll just shrink away now. No, 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 David, when Goliath started to approach, David, not gingerly, he didn't tiptoe out to meet him, right? He didn't hem and haw. David ran out to meet him. And then you know the story, right? He took out a rock. He put it in the sling. He flung it. 
hit Goliath in the head, sunk in, Goliath falls down dead. David, because he's like, man, I am a man of my word, <laughs> went and he took the Philistine sword out of its sheath um, and he cut his head off. And then Israel routed the Philistines that day um, because David, a man after God's own heart, was committed to doing what was right, wasn't shamed into silence. He was faithful in the little things to prepare him for the big things, right? He trusted in God and God alone. And then ultimately, he followed through. So we talk about being a man after God's own heart. Really, guys, it's that simple. It's not a complicated process. It's not complicated procedures. And we talk about to men, men, I, we need men engaged that will be men after God's own heart. Men that will want to be great men. Not great men in their own eyes, not great men in the eyes of their neighbors, but great men in the eyes of God because they are after his own heart. Not great because they're, they're, they're rich. Not great because they've got a lot of friends. Not great because they've got a lot of women. Not great for any of those reasons, but great simply because they are men after God's own heart. And they'll commit to doing what's right. And they won't be shamed into silence. And they will be faithful in every opportunity that God gives them. And they will trust in God alone and they will show up and follow through. Last thing I'll tell you is this, as we get ready to close out our service, uh, and this very brief series on men, um, is that um, one of the things that leads most commonly to toxic masculinity in our culture is isolation. It's one of the tools that Satan uses. Being isolated is problematic, and it's made worse. Uh, it's a byproduct. It's made worse by our cultural's um, push for men to be self-reliant. It's one of the things that we hear and we understand commonly in our world is that um, men are, are, are called to be extremely self-reliant, and that leads to isolation, and that leads to toxic masculinity. When you are on your own on an island— and so my simple encouragement to you, this, this is something we would have dealt with at a greater length next week. So just my simple encouragement to you is, is we kind of try to um, squeeze some time in here is simply don't be isolated. The tough it out, suck it up, suffer in silence, go it alone. Um, attitude that, that our culture has for men is garbage. It's not biblical, right? You need people. Sometimes, listen to me, one of the manliest things you can do and I know this sounds so counterintuitive in the world that we live in, um, but one, one of the manliest things you can do is you can, um, you can say to somebody that you trust, man, I'm struggling. I screwed it up. I'm depressed. One of the manliest things you can do is say, you know what, guys, I, I, am, I am stuck in a sin of pornography and I need help. I'm drinking way too much and I need help. I fell off the horse. Horse? Wagon. <laughs> Maybe if you got on a horse, you would get there faster. <laughs> I don't know. I'm having trouble with my wife. I'm having trouble with my kids. I mean, sometimes, listen, listen to me. One of the things that creates toxic, toxic masculinity is self-reliance and isolation. And, and God has called us very specifically in the church to not be isolated. That's why it, it kills me when I hear men talk about the fact that they don't need the church. You know, the church is nice, but I don't need to be a part of the church. I don't need to be regularly involved in the life of the church. I don't need—read the New Testament— like, this isn't me telling you these things. This is the New Testament telling you these things. There are so many one another's that you can't do if you're not part of the local life and body of the church. Love, encouragement, admonishment, support, accountability, adventure. All of that is wrapped up in this idea of you being part of the body of Christ. And our culture wants you to be self-reliant. Show up to church every now and then. Check it off the list. Call it a day. Find that in the Bible, and we'll have a conversation. But man, it, it ain't there. And so something that we would have talked a great length about 
next week is something I just want to encourage you on this week with, with the thing. Hey, come talk to me. If, you've got a, if you think that's false, let's have a conversation about it. If you're struggling to see what that means for you, let's come have a, a, a conversation about it. If you're in the point where you're like, okay, well, I've been trying to go it alone, but if you're saying I need help, then, and you're in that position, come have a conversation with me about it. I can promise you I have conversations with men about the help I need. I'm not coming to you here from a position of you do it because, I, you know, you have to. I don't. Man, all the time. I, 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 uh, I, I sent up an SOS this week, uh, um, you know, to two guys. And, and one of them, I, I, we have plans to get together. And, and another one was, was to a buddy in, uh, in the Quad Cities. And, and we met in Iowa City. Um, and I ate Italian nachos, right? And a calzone. You can't go wrong there. And we... And, and we talked for two and a half hours, and then I drove the hour home, and he drove the hour home. Listen, don't do this by yourself. You don't need to do this by yourself. So as we wrap up, I'm going to ask the praise team to come back up, and they'll get ready to close us out. And uh, these would have been more effective if they were on the screen, um, but I'm going to tell them to you anyway. And men and women, you can too, but men, I'm talking to you. I'm going to ask you to pick a couple of these. Uh, we'll give credit to Kyle Eidelman for this list. This is his, but adapted. Um, and I'm going to encourage you, as I read through these, pick a couple and commit to doing them um, as you strive to be, again, biblically authentic men. Uh, invite a godly man to lunch and ask him five questions about his faith and his family. Send an encouraging text or note to your adult children telling them that you love them and that you're praying for them. Say I'm sorry to somebody that you need to apologize to. Take specific responsibility for something that's wrong. Find a widow or a single mom in your neighborhood or in the church and ask them if they need help with a project. Confess a secret sin to a brother in Christ and ask for accountability. For one week, pray for your coworkers and your boss on your way into the building every day. Join a small group next cycle. For one month, pray every night out loud for your wife. That's one that I've chosen. You can ask me how that's going to go. No, don't ask me how it's going to go. Ask me how it's going. For one month, begin every day with 10 minutes of prayer. Every day for a week, ask your wife or your children with sincerity, how can I serve you today? Listen to me. You want to be a man after God's own heart. You want to be a great man. Commit to doing what's right. Don't be shamed into silence. Be faithful in the little things and get after it, okay? Heavenly Father, God, you are good and gracious and kind and we love you. Thank you for being a God that loves us and cares for us. Thank you for making it so clear in Scripture what we are to do. Now, Father, give us the burden and the passion and, and the desire to do it. We love you. We praise you. We thank you. Amen.